hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to A Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am back with the resplendent Jason Thompson. Uh, we're both knackered after long days at work, but we promise to give you exciting and enthralling material. Don't we, Jason? <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> He's fallen asleep already. Jesus yes, Christ. indeed. <laughs> well, we're here in that kind of day. But Evil of the Daleks, about... give me something to stay out for. Yes, well, there you go. There you, you just dropped that. We're here to talk about Evil of the Daleks. We're going into episode four, and I'm going to smack you around the face with a question straight away. Go for it. Okay, slap. Okay, so a lot of this episode, a lot of it is without dialogue and it is protracted either action sequences or suspense sequences. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yes. So is this the closest, like a whole episode of Doctor Who's come to like, like being a movie where the visuals are far more important than what well, almost the storytelling? Because I think the story pauses quite a bit here as well. Uh, I think it comes close. I think uh, Deadly Assassin 3 is a close contender. Oh, yeah. For that. Um, possibly even better or worse, depending on your point of view, in that the plot of Deadly Assassin absolutely completely stops <laughs> for part three. At the end of it, they haven't advanced just a bit. You know, when you look at it, the, the real protagonists in this spend the entire episode sitting or lying down. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Spandrel doesn't even get up to shoot that guard that the master sent in to kill the doctor. <laughs> the doctor's lying down for the entire episode, and so is Goff. Yep. And Spandrel yet... and Engin are sat next to the doctor watching him. The master is sat next to uh, Goff watching him. The only person who actually stands up is that chap, what's his name, Solus, that the master sends to send to kill the doctor. And then he gets shot, so... <laughs> Who I believe is Ibrahim Namin from. It is yes, same same actor. Yeah, and yeah, I know we're about Pyramids Mars. I don't know how we've got off track already. But anyway, yes, this one, this episode, um, uh, <laughs> actually leads me also into uh, one of our Twitter comments um, oh. that I requested before we started at the beginning. Hmm. And Sai uh, Hart calls this episode padding because he asked how much of this story is padding, and he's thinking particularly of episode four. Um, I think episode four is less padding than episode one. Because as I think we discussed at the time, episode one is almost <clears throat> entirely superfluous to the actual plot. Whereas episode four is the crux of the matter, which is Jamie's test to find the human factor. So although it's a lot of action, a lot of suspense and not a lot of dialogue, it is actually still important to the plot of the story. And those those long sequences are punctuated with um scene shot on film of Troughton explaining the purpose of those long sequences so so they're kind of we're, we're given a reason as to why those sequences are are taking place yes yeah Patrick Troughton took a holiday for this one and just appears on film sitting at a computer bank talking about the various elements of the human factor and you know I'm going to press play in a second but I actually think this is one of those episodes as well 
that is a bit miserable on audio because there's so little dialogue and it's yes. just sort of music and and if you're going to listen to the the soundtrack it's just a lot of instructions about what's going on whereas as an animation they've got a lot to play with yes absolutely don't think they quite got it right in some places and we'll come to that but uh one moment in particular stuck out for me when I was watching it at the BFI, but uh, we'll, we'll get there. Well, I just remember you were absolutely appalled at the end of the last episode as Kemmel approached Jamie with his arms outstretched in a very villainous way. Yes, I think that was over-egging the pudding somewhat. <laughs> well, that's where we left off. Shall we pick up? I think we should, definitely. Go on, count us in then. Okay, in five, four, three, two, one... Yeah. You know, that's a sort of like um a bit of other opinion, even even other than the Twitter opinions that we've had. I went on to the Doctor Who ratings guide to have a look and see what if there was anybody out there that would give Evil of the Daleks like a bad review. Mm. Archon really found a soul. There was there was maybe one that who was being contrarian and saying, Oh, all right, it's it's fairly average. <laughs> I don't think it could be called a bad story. I think the more I've watched it, the more I look at it, the more you think about it. And doing something like this, you're making me think about it, Joe. So this is your fault. Mm. <laughs> the plot doesn't stand up to much in the way of scrutiny. Um, it's not well plotted by any stretch of the imagination, but it has so many good um, character moments. It has so many set pieces in it that make it really good but the plot makes not a jot of sense um well okay well then i've got a question for you about the plot because i've been thinking about it so work oh, a bit of a boring job so my mind wanders a bit so you know if i'm doing a story that evening then suddenly i'll start thinking about plot inconsistencies and things like this and if the daleks cannot identify the human factor yeah so th this is something with all their technology bear in mind they've got time travel and all sorts they're pretty smart cookies if they cannot identify the human factor how do they know the doctor can well i suspect that they've got an idea that he's you know cleverer than they are <laughs> and yeah again probably one of those things that doesn't make a great deal of sense because it turns out they don't want the human factor in which case why did they even let him put it into any of the daleks at all but we'll come to that now i've just seen the bit that made me a little bit unsure in the animation where they've animated the bit where kemmel's ended up on the roof hanging from the guttering oh yeah yeah yeah. and in the animation i think quite a few people laughed about it he runs into the room and through a door that opens out onto a sloping roof and I'd always envisaged that, and I'm open to correction if the episode turns up, I could be wrong, but I'd always envisaged it as him flying through a window, not a door, because there's no reason for a door to open out on a roof like that. Well, what does the telesnap show us? Have you studied them? It doesn't. Room? That's the problem. Oh, it doesn't. Okay. Well, we, we see him hanging off the guttering. We see a close-up of his hands on the gutter, but we don't see what he actually went through. But I'm pretty certain it would have been a door, uh, a window rather than a door. So this is just sort of dramatic license that they're taking. Yeah, I would say so. Which we've discussed before, and fair enough, I think. Yeah, to to a point, um, absolutely. 
Oh, there we go. Jamie's just been saved from the swinging axe. This, again, is one of those things that makes you wonder if Jamie's supposed to be being tested for the human factor. Why is the house absolutely riddled with traps that will kill him <laughs> in grisly, horrible ways if he doesn't get pushed out of the way? I want to know what Maximal gets up to in his spare time, that he's got all those poor cullises that come down and cut your head off and things <laughs> like that going on. Well, yeah, there is that as well. <laughs> what has this guy done to his house? The only thing I can tell you is that certainly is not happening in my house, you know? No, no, there's no there's no lethal traps in my house, as far as I know. But I'll tell you one thing that really stood out in this was the music, Dudley Simpson's music in this episode. It's doing a lot of the work. Oh, the music is absolutely stunning. And um, I think it might have been Cy Hart. I can't remember. I'll have to dig up the Twitter thread again, uh, which I forgot to do before we started this episode. So I'll do it for the next one. Uh, is this the first Dudley Simpson score that really flies? And I think it probably is. Well, what did he do before this? Off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you. But oh, I know I he has. I know he definitely did Planet of Giants and he definitely did uh, The Chase. Yeah, and those are fine. Um, but The Chase is very jaunty. Yeah. Memorable. Yeah. I like it. But I think this one is is the first one that really gets the the mood and the atmosphere in and has sort of very... Nope, that thought vanished out of my head halfway through. <laughs> Move on, quick. <laughs> because I th I think this is a, a this is oh hello. Now, Jason, you're going to have to do me a favour. Am I? Yes, <laughs> because this is the moment where I tell you that my episode didn't start, so I need to know where you're at now, so I can catch up with you. Ah, <laughs> uh, Waterfield and Maxtable are uh, removing Toby's body from the laboratory, and Waterfield is having a bit of a breakdown about his his part in this where people are dying and i think i've done pretty well without the pictures all right <laughs> i think you have yeah <laughs> can you give me a time a time stamp please sir i can give you a time stamp uh let's have a look i'm now at and 40 seconds now okie dokie I'm back in the game, baby. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Yeah. So this is where Maxtable pulls a gun out of a drawer. Again, this, I worry about this guy. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, clearly he's not the full ticket, is he, Maxtable? No. Um, but this is the point where we start to realise he's actually a bit even worse than that, really. Does that make Edward Waterfield like a total sap? Oh, Waterfield is a total sap, absolutely. Absolutely is. But uh, now we get Kemmel and Jamie making friends. That's rather nice. And, uh, you know, in terms of... I don't, you know, don't think this is the best period of Doctor Who for uh, racial representation. No. We did touch on this very gently earlier in the story... Um, but having the two characters working together, that that's kind of nice, you know. That's certainly better treatment than Tobeman got in Tomb of the Sidemen. Oh, very much so, yeah. And I actually rather like the friendship that develops between Jamie and Kemmel. Um, it's quite it's quite believable. 
um, they've met under strange circumstances and now they've uh, saved each other's lives and uh, and there we go they now have a mutual interest in rescuing victoria you know in those scenes between um maxtable and edward warsfield why is there a dalek in the machine in the background No idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wasn't paying that much attention, to be honest. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, do you know what? I really do like the uh, the attention to detail on Kimmel. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, from the pictures that are available, and I did discuss this earlier, Fraser Hines is very easy on the eye as well. In fact, this is a good episode for me, all right? <laughs> <laughs> so it would seem. Uh, James H on Twitter asks, should Kemmel have had nipples in the animation? Uh, yeah, a little more attention to detail might have been quite nice, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you can't please all the people. I remember bizarrely somebody complaining that they hadn't animated Victoria with enough cleavage. Really? Yeah. And, uh, that it's was, astonishing that, was that people focus on, isn't it? You know, the details that people get obsessed about. It It is, and it isn't at the same time. <laughs> you know these film sequences of Patrick Troughton? Yes. So what occurs? Does he just go off to Elin for an afternoon and knock him out, and then he goes away on holiday? Yeah, basically. All the pre-filming for the stories is done ahead of time. Um, so, yeah, they'll they'll quite often do the filming sometimes weeks before the actual studio starts working. So I think that these ones, the film inserts for this were recorded uh, during the faceless ones. Oh, okay. Um, certainly, I think the location, uh, the location stuff was. Um, but yeah, these film sequences were pre-recorded. So I mean, it, the, the, the pre-filming of Doctor Who is why you have these wonderful anecdotes, like the fact that Adrian Hill filmed her death sequence before <laughs> she even filmed her first appearance in the actual show, chronologically speaking. But it's a dangerous business, isn't it, doing the film work? For, I mean, doing anything first, because if something happens to a member of the cast, then just say, uh, you know, worst case scenario, somebody dies, then you've either got a refilm or rewrite. Do you know what I mean? Like like in Dad's Army when oh, what was the fella's name? The the James Smith. Yeah. And he filmed, didn't he? All they did all the all the filming for that whole season. Yes, he's he appears in on film in one episode, but not in any of the studio sequences because he he'd already filmed the stuff. Um and then he got taken ill. Um yeah. Whereas I think now because the nature of television has changed so much that everything is recorded technically on film now, isn't it? On location, apart from a few rare things that they do in a studio. And so I don't really think that problem really exists anymore. I don't think it exists in the same way because the whole method of television production has changed to the point where they film scenes at a time rather than... Because at this point, I think they were still recording more or less in order. So they go through and record as much as possible in sequence. Um, yeah. As far as I'm aware, I think it that changed in Death to the Daleks, didn't it? I think that was the first time they shook it up and did it in set sequence rather than in story sequence. So they were filmed. And John Pertwee was thrown because he's yeah. so used to doing things in order. Yeah, I'm not sure. I have a feeling there are a few examples of it, of it earlier than that, but I think that's when it became the norm. Um, 
but I'd have to look that up. I don't. So don't quote me on that. Anyone who's listening who knows that we're wrong, don't worry. <laughs> but, well, yeah. no, no, I only know that because there is um, there is studio footage of Pertwee in the studio bemoaning the fact that that's not the way they normally shoot it. And then on the documentary, Michael E. Bryant says, no, I shook it up. I wanted to make it cheaper. I wanted us to do it set by set. And Pertwee can't remember any of his lines because he's doing it all out of order. Yeah, and apparently yeah. it was pretty shaky to start off with, with his lines. Well, he's um, famously said repeatedly that when he worked with Patrick Troughton on The Three Doctors, <laughs> it took them a while to get into sync because Pertwee learns his lines and needs the cue yeah. because that's what he's used to, how he's used to working. Uh, whereas Troughton kind of improvised around the dialogue that was on the page and gave you the gist of it. So oh, it took them a while to actually gel. But once they did, they worked very well together. But uh, yeah. I wonder if Troughton started out that way or if he just got comfortable and started, you know, I can't imagine in your first, in like Power of the Daleks, just sort of doing these scenes on the fly and giving a rough estimation of the dialogue. Well, I think it all depends on your definition of rough estimation, because I think if, if Pertwee needed the exact cue, then even a slight word here or there being different would have thrown him. Oh, do you know, I love all this about Kimmel being um, absolutely obsessed with Victoria. He's got that little flower, isn't he? But yeah, it's um, it's kind of classic, isn't it? You know, we've got to save the pretty girl. Um, and I don't know if it's true in the live action one, but she's sort of up on the bell tower, like the princess in the tower, isn't she? She's up on a balcony. Like in yes, it's um, there's a gallery landing that she's standing on. Uh, Pete Lambert on Twitter asks, how did they imprison Victoria upstairs? <laughs> because they hovered. That's why we just didn't the see the Daleks couldn't go upstairs. They've always been able to go upstairs. We don't really see it that often. That's all. Oh, I'm not even. Oh, real. Pete, yeah, card is marked. <laughs> Bloody good thing we ain't coming to Utopia this weekend, all right? We slap you around your ears. <laughs> um, have you have you studied the telly snaps at all for this story? Because I'm telling you, the film sequences of the Daleks going around the house, they've captured it really well in the animate in the animation here. Um, yeah. they look amazing. They do. The telly snaps do look great. Um, I did. I did look at them before we started, although I didn't refresh my memory before we did these episodes. But yes, I have seen. I remember being very excited when they were first published in Doctor Who magazine way back in the nineties. Was it? Uh, am I going mad? Was it the telly snaps and then the archive in the middle and then the telly snaps again? It was like that, wasn't it? In the middle of the magazine. Uh, Evil of the Daleks, I think, was covered in an archive in a in a special somewhere but i can't remember but yeah certainly there was a yeah the archive feature in the middle was a, a pull out and keep which i used to do and then i realized i was ruining my magazine so i stopped doing it it's um it's such an incongruous thing a dalek gliding around like a victorian house every time oh, they do that with the daleks plonk them in a setting where they don't belong it just works beautifully it does. It, it really does look good. Oh, and here's Molly being dragged in by Arthur Terrell. Yeah, she's treated terribly, isn't she? I feel so sorry for her when she just bursts into tears. Yeah. Oh, well, I think doesn't Ruth come along and sort him out? Yes. Yes, she does. And uh, yeah, the whole Arthur Terrell. I mean, this is 
when Sai was asking about padding, uh, Arthur Terrell, he's padding. He thought he's yeah. uh, he's pretty much padding. We never find out exactly why the Daleks put a control device on him. But you know, why like... they could control him, why they didn't bother controlling anyone else, or what? So. But then do you know what? I think if you sat and look at any Doctor Who story that is longer than four episodes, yeah, I bet you anything you could find two episodes worth of padding in any story. I don't know. <clears throat> uh, there is certainly a lot of padding in. I mean, I don't think it's re- it's necessarily the case in that has to be longer than four episodes. There's definitely some padding in some four parters that I can think of, um, like Doctor Tyler's pointless escape attempt in the three doctors oh yeah. <laughs> and joe and the doctor are basically just standing in a corridor chatting because the plot isn't ready for them to meet omega just yet so they just stand there chatting for a bit dr tyler runs around in a circle ends up back where he started and even says that was a bit of a waste of time wasn't it we're looking at it going yes yes it was <laughs> you, do you remember the doctor doing that maze on the wall in death to the daleks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> some people might call that padding watching that go along yeah, I know. But, you know, like what we've got to remember is, is they they really weren't thinking of these things as whole stories, were they? They were putting out an episode a week, you know, and what you were supposed to focus on was that 25 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's why I always say to people who complain that the stories are too long and boring. So just break them up, watch them an episode at a time. You were never supposed to sit down and watch three hours of The Evil of the Daleks. And sort of on those terms, we don't know that that Arthur Terrell stuff ain't going nowhere. For 25 minutes, he's a bastard, you know, and he's being horrible to Molly and he's effectively a villain. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, a Dalek has just shoved Maxtable to the floor. I do it's love the pretty... fact they get a bit physical. He's a bit stuff. vicious, isn't he, that Dalek? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think uh, David Whitaker is convinced, you know, the Daleks are, I'm not going to say the C word, so I'm going to say bastards. He's convinced they're complete bastards. Well, they are complete bastards. Absolutely. Um, But, uh, yeah, it's... I don't know if you noticed, uh, Jason, but those bubbling vats are still going on behind them there. I do worry about his lab (laughs) setup. (laughs) That experiment's been going on a long time. Bubbling liquids in random glassware, and it's just a uh, shorthand for laboratory, isn't it? Yeah, which makes no sense whatsoever. But that's it's far from the only thing in this story that makes no sense. Well, I think that's some poor, you know, uh, stagehand's job there to make sure that's <laughs> going nicely. <laughs> after all the acting's going, okay, what happens with Ruth? I cannot remember at all what happens to Ruth Maxwell. Oh, she, Molly, and Arthur Terrell disappear in the next episode after Downton Abbey. <laughs> quite or possibly downstairs quite possibly oh now we get maxtable explaining why he's helping the daleks because they promised him the secret of metal into gold i do quite i mean it, I think, it's a fairly shoddy motive but i do love the fact he's utterly obsessed with wealth that he's willing to go to all these lengths it, it is something that trips up a lot of doctor who villains isn't it money hey, oh it certainly does Absolutely. But uh, yeah, the ability to transform metal into gold, that would be, well, it would be a hell of a breakthrough. Um, <laughs> that would be a breakthrough now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely it would, yes. Turning one element into another, yes, that's quite a... But for quite this, a... he has kidnapped his friend's daughter. He has invited in these terrible, you know, machine creatures. He is... Um, 
effectively set the doctor's friend off uh, you know in like a murderous trap i mean he's done some extreme things in order to discover this secret yes he certainly has and oh yeah the daleks look so good in that house don't they and i think the shot is exactly like that from above yeah i think uh yeah i remember a telesnap like that are they shooting in a house in an actual house yes yeah they are which is why there was that special Dalek a couple of episodes ago, which had a narrow skirt section so that it could get through the doors. I see this so badly. I would love to see this, um, but I'm also a bit nervous about seeing one of the episodes. So. Have you um, have you seen the picture that's on Twitter today of that fella's collection of cans? Yes. Where they don't, he says, none of it was catalogued. We don't know what's on these cans. I mean, that to Doctor, that's like catnip to Doctor Who. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, everyone's going, oh my god, there must be some Doctor Who in there, as if Doctor Who isn't really just a drop in the ocean of all the material material that was on film. But he did have two Doctor Who episodes, didn't he? He did, yes. So the possibility is there. So the possibility is there. That's so enough, Jason. <laughs> it would be interesting if anything else came up, because it has been 10 years, I think, since the last one, hasn't it? Because it was just before the 50th that we got Web of Fear and Enemy of the World back. So It's very strange, you know, all this talk of the Celestial Toymaker in the 60th. I'm, I'm wondering. Can you hear that? I can hear the keyboards being battered by people on that. Uh, missing episodes mega thread on Gallifrey base. All the theorists are out now in their drones. <laughs> yeah, it would be good to get something back, but you know, the longer it goes, the less chance there is. But you never know. Why is he going up that rope? Can't they go up the stairs? Apparently not. <laughs> it's in the gallery landing, but not. There's no staircase associated with this one. The <gasps> stairs must be around the other side of the house. I'll tell you for why. It's a more dynamic sequence this way. It certainly is. Oh, but it's all right. He's up. They're safe. Now they can knock on the door and ask to be uh, let in. So, so far, Jamie's displayed what? Courage and forgiveness and friendship. And instinct. And instinct, yeah. Okay. I don't think those are the reasons, you know, that we defeat the Daleks. Uh, probably not, no. Ooh, oh, and a like appearing behind them. What that's a, a very odd cliff. Is that how it plays out in the episode? Yeah. And I remember that one from uh, the, the audio cassette with Tom Baker's narration when he says in his in his wonderful voice, he said, below them a Dalek appeared. Behind them, the door opened. It was another Dalek. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. And in Tom Baker's voice. Yeah. That's exactly. absolutely amazing. It's a very different set of narration from his Power of the Daleks narration because this the evil one was written in the third person. He gave a much more subdued reading of it. And this is a very different episode to the previous three that we did. In fact, there's not another episode of Evil of the Daleks quite like this one. No. In fact, I think every episode from here on goes on a different direction. It's quite a... Yeah. It's quite an odd little story. You know, you know when there's all those soil, we talked about this in the Daleks Master Plan of like um Dennis Spooner and Terry Nation trying to outdo each other, right? I'm gonna box you into a corner with this cliffhanger and see. I feel like David Whitaker's doing that with himself in this story, right? We'll start off in the present, now we're going to the past, we have these action sequences, right? And then we're going where are we going <laughs> episode five? Episode five, uh, we finish off the uh 
the rescue of Victoria, only she gets nabbed again, and then the human factor is complete. And we shall see what it does to the Daleks. You said to me in one of the earlier episodes, you know, you thought Victoria had a good showing in this story. She hadn't done much so far, you know. She hasn't so far, no. <laughs> she's done in Scream and Whimper. To be fair, she's pretty good at that throughout her run. To be fair, she's been kidnapped by Daleks and she's never seen any alien creatures before. So, you know, she's still adjusting at this point. That's true. I've not been in that situation, so I couldn't possibly adapt. Yeah, if you were were imprisoned by a bunch of Daleks, I bet you'd scream and whimper, Joe. I don't think my other half would be climbing up ropes and facing portcullises, though. Do you know? (laughs) (laughs) You'll say I'll find another loudmouth Doctor Who fan. Don't worry. (laughs) I'll be in a lot of trouble. Well, look, before we out this episode, is there anything else from Twitter? Is there anything else from Twitter that's relevant to episode four? Um, let's have a. a looking, you know, look. So Fraser Gregory asks, who writes Daleks the best, David Whittaker or Ben Aronovich? Because I swore he was going to say Terry Nation. God, that's a toughie. I'll say David Whittaker. It's uh, it's almost unfair because David Whittaker's got thirteen episodes to play with, and Ben Aronovich only wrote four, um, yeah. and four bangers. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, I think as far as the Daleks themselves go, it's difficult to um, say because David Whittaker wrote the Daleks themselves in brilliant ways, with them scheming in Power of the Daleks when they start off at a disadvantage and have to worm their way into the colony and take what they need before they can burst out. And then the evil of the Daleks, where he does something totally weird with them. Ben Aronovich, um, I think he wrote one of the best Dalek stories because he took what the Daleks actually are and what they represent and wrote a big story around it with lots Mm -hmm. of other characters showing similar issues as the Daleks. It was kind of the whole point of the, the racial purity angle of the Daleks was woven throughout remembrance of the daleks brilliantly but the daleks themselves were just basically they shouted and shot at each other a lot um but the joy of that was that suddenly we're in an era of television where we can start pulling off some impressive dalek on dalek action sequences oh definitely and yeah, in terms of like a set piece remembrance is fabulous it's probably the best classic doctor who story it, it, it really is one of the best, and uh, especially in context when you look at season 24, which, you know, it, it has its issues. It tries. It's trying to do something good. I think it falls short quite a bit in several places um, and the tone. And then you come to Remembrance of the Daleks and it's almost <laughs> like you're watching a different show. It's, you know, it's great. Love it. It certainly pulls its socks up. Um but I would still say David Whittaker, though. I think because I think in Power of the Daleks, he's written the definitive Dalek story. And obviously, you know, we spent six episodes talking about that, but showing them at their sort of devious, manipulative best. They don't even need weapons in order to bring yeah. down this Connolly. Okay, ultimately they do, but they have to manipulate them in order to be able to sort of manufacture enough to wipe them all out. And they use their own bloody greed. And selfish motivations again. Oh, it's just marvellous. Whereas I, I love Power of the Daleks because apart from the Doctor the, and the companions, there are no good guys among the people that they encounter. Yeah, Everyone is motivated by some form of self-interest. 
you got that fabulous bitch Jan Lee. I love her. She's oh, great. Really? <laughs> but then in evil, he's doing. You're right. He's doing something really unusual. He's putting him in an unusual setting, and he's having them behave in a very unusual way throughout. And that's really interesting as well. Just the weirdness of it is interesting. Yeah, I mean, Steve Alexander on that front asked, do you like this reinvention of the Daleks as mythical, almost magical creatures? Yes, I do, very much. I'd not even thought of it in those terms uh, before, but yeah, I suppose, you know, magical creatures coming out of a cabinet and doing weird and wonderful things, they're just, yeah, it's kind of, I like it. I like it. Coming out of a hall of mirrors, you know, in a puff as well. But and I think the mythic comes in the last episode. Oh yeah, it's uh, you know the sort of destruction that you talk about in countless eons to come. Do you remember when the Dalek Emperor was taken down on Scaro and the good Daleks went in and blasted the shit out of everybody and caused a massive civil war? It is mythic. It's so mythic they didn't dare do another Dalek story for about six years. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, well, how are we going to top that? The, the final end. We'll, <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Did we, do you think we covered that question well? I think we did. Okay. Do you think we can cover episode five now? I think we can cover episode five. Let's do that. <laughs> okay, let's do it. <laughs> Bosh. <laughs>